Welcome to the VIP Jazzwall Report, the report that asks insightful questions and gets revealing answers from people whose lives are faced with dilemmas and challenges beyond the ordinary. Today's show is about one man's journey in a world of religious differences. It's about pain and sacrifice on one end and about courage, freedom and hope on the other. Before I introduce my guest, let me ask you this. What would it take to change your religion? Would you be prepared to be disowned by your family for your religious belief? Would you be able to endure the pain of physical torture in the name of religion? And would you be prepared to fight those who persecute the followers of your religion? Well, today's guest is the Reverend Majid al-Shafi, who's had to answer these questions in his own life. He was born in Egypt as a Muslim to a wealthy family. He decided to convert to Christianity and in the process was disowned by his family and physically tortured by the Egyptian government. Now, Majid has made the decision to dedicate his life and service to Christ and is also the president and founder of One Free World International. Before we begin, please be advised that listener discretion is suggested on this show as our guest will be giving a descriptive account of his torture that he went through. And on that note, welcome to the show, Reverend Majid. It's an honor to have you here. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, you were born a Muslim, brought up in a wealthy family, so you had a privileged upbringing. Why did you change your religion from Islam to Christianity? Um, I was born from a wonderful Muslim family back home in Egypt. My family worked in the legal career. My uncle was judge in the Egyptian Supreme Court. My father was a lawyer. My uh, brother was a lawyer. If you can imagine, uh, in my bedroom there was a, a library full of books about human rights, freedom, and justice, and democracy. I believed in every and each one of these books. Uh, after I finished my high school, I went to the law school in Alexandria to become a lawyer like the rest of my family. Mm-hmm. And the persecution that I found happening to the Christian minority, many people don't know that, but Egypt originally was a Christian country. I think till about and, the 7th century, right? Until the 7th century, uh, a Muslim leader by the name Omar ibn al-As, mm-hmm. he entered Egypt by force, and he forced the Christians to convert to Islam. Right. Um, there is something in the Egyptian law, it's called al-Khat al-Hamayuni law. It's a law that you cannot build churches. You can build bars, discotheques, but not churches. Many of the Christian activists is in prison, uh, tortured, up to 8,000, 9,000 activists. Uh, all of this reality of persecution of Christians make me wonder why. Why do we persecute them? It's in my belief that you don't persecute somebody unless you are scared from the truth that they carry. I start to read the difference between Bible and, and the Quran and Islam and Christianity. And uh, uh, the, the peaceful spirit in, in the Bible, uh, the logic, I'm a very logical man, and you have to convince me before I make any decision. But the justice, uh, the equality, uh, if, if I may say, like, there is many difference between Islam and Christianity, and of course, it takes a long time to explain all of them. Right. But if I can make it just in a short statement or just one sentence, the difference between Islam and Christianity is, in my opinion, the God of Islam uh, send his, your children to die for him. But the God of Christianity send his child to die for you. And that's, main, that's one of the main 
difference between Islam and Christianity, and that's why I converted to Christianity. Were there any other factors, being a Muslim, that left you feeling dissatisfied? Was it the people around you, maybe? The, the priests or something like that, that, you know, in, interpret the, the religion in a wrong way? I, I would say the violent. I, I, I would say the, the lack of human rights, especially women rights, mm-hmm. uh, rights of the minority. I cannot believe in anything that discriminates against others. For me, it's fundamental uh, reason. Now, there are other religions out there. Hinduism, Buddhism. Absolutely. Why, why, why Christianity? I believe that only in Christianity, and this is just my belief, of course, um, that it's the only religion in the world that you see every king as I mentioned previously, send his people to die for his throne. But only Christ, in my opinion, they came to die for his own people. And this is one thing that you will only find in Christianity, not in any other religion. Now, when you converted, how old were you? I was 18 years old. And how did your family react? They disowned me. My family didn't know in the beginning. They did know after I was arrested by the Egyptian authority. And in the beginning, my brother came to my, to my house arrest, and he tried to bribe me. Uh, he tried to give me one million Egyptian pounds and asked to become a partner in his law firm. He's a criminal lawyer. He's a very well-known criminal lawyer in Egypt. <clears throat> and I told him, I will accept your offer if you sit down and debate it with me, why I should believe in what you believe and why you shouldn't believe in what I believe. He refused even the discussion. And I told him that I prefer to die with a comfortable conscience, knowing that I believe in the right path, than to die rich without a true belief in my heart. And did they officially disown you? By the court, yes, officially disown me. Well, how does that feel? Because um, isn't that the ultimate persecution and torture that you have to live with every day when your own family? You have a, you, you, you have a situation here that you have to make a decision. Mm-hmm. You become a victim or you become a victor. And I decide to become a victor. I forgive them. I did not disown them, and I will never disown them. They are of my own flesh and blood. But in the same time, you have to see the light in the end of the dark tunnel. By that, I mean today. Every human being believes in what I believe. Every human being believes in freedom of religion. Is my brother and sister. And that's how I see that now I ended with a bigger family. Have they been in touch? No, they are not. Would you take them back? If if they they took you back? Absolutely. Now, you know, you changed your religion, but you didn't change your name. It's still a Muslim name. Why is that? I'm proud of my name. I'm proud of my heritage. I think my name carries a testimony, a testimony of a Muslim name, but a Christian heart. And that's why I kept my name.
Wouldn't it have been more powerful to remain a Muslim and fight against the persecution of Christians rather than compromise your own life by converting to Christianity? Uh, in in the beginning, I I my request was equal rights. See, I'm not talking here about debate of religion. I'm not here to talk about what religion better than the other. Mm-hmm. That's not my debate, and that's not where I'm standing. I'm talking about freedom of religion, not a debate of religion. So in the beginning, I asked from the Egyptian government to give equal rights to the Christians as they have for the Muslims, uh, equal rights to the Baha'is as they have for the Muslims, equal rights for any other minorities. But my request led me to being arrested, tortured, and later on uh, received the death penalty. But you see, what I'm trying to understand here is you were a Christian first, and on, on being a Christian, you asked for equal rights. That's correct. Do you think it would have been different coming from a significant law, law, law family, uh, having been a Muslim and then asked for equal rights for Christians? I don't think my heart could accept it. See, after you know the truth, mm-hmm. you have an option to become part of the problem, or you become the heart of the solution. You said after you know the truth. What what truth? The truth of my belief the in Christ. Right. And I make no apology mm-hmm. for my belief in Christ. And I make no apology in my belief in Christianity. The only thing that I can tell you that, once again, after you know the truth, you can't ignore it. Well, it's... It's true. And, you know, I find Egypt very ironic because, like you said, you know, till the 7th century, it was a, a Christian country until Amar al-Bas conquered it. Yeah. Uh, and in Egypt, you know, you have belly dancing, you have nightclubs, but you can't have a church. Or you can't have a new church. The existing churches are still there. And you cannot fix the old churches or the existing churches. Mm-hmm. Well, because of your fight for equal rights, you were taken in by the Egyptian authorities and you said you were subject to torture. That's correct. Oh, um, over how many days? Seven days. For me, it was like 700 years. Can you share with us how this happened and, and, what, and more importantly, what they did to you? That's a very painful story. Um, for seven days, I remember it like yesterday. August. 15, 1998, 1.30 a.m. I was in my office in El Hanam Street. I heard knock on my door. It's 1.30 in the morning, so it's very strange timing. I heard knock on my door. I went to open the door. Somebody asked for a name. It was the wrong name. I told nobody here by this name. I'm sure that they just want to make sure that if I'm in the office or not. <clears throat> Two minutes after I closed the door, five soldiers, two officers, they came, they broke the door, they arrested me. They took me to police station. It's called the Zoli police station. It's behind the Egyptian parliament, in the matter of uh, the parliament. In the matter of fact, it's beside Mitan al-Tahrir, where the demonstration is taking place. And the officer, they took me there, and the officer told me, we know everything about you. We know about your organization that you built underground. Mm -hmm. We know about all the books that you wrote. But one thing we don't know is the rest of your team. 
the group. The so they group. were trying to find out you and who else is involved. Exactly. We know that you are the head, but we don't know the tail. I, don't, I told them I don't know which organization and which uh, group. And if you know everything about me, why are you asking me? They told me you want to play tough, we can play tough together. I told them tough is my middle name. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Next day, they transferred me to Abu Zab al-Jal. If you know anybody from the Middle East, ask them about Abu Zab al-Jal. They will give you an answer. It's hell on earth. 25%. I will tell you something right now. You will not hear it in your CNN. You will not hear it in your, I don't know, ABC or whatever channels that you guys have in the United States. I will tell you something that never said in the media. 25% from the space of Abu Zab al-Jil is underground. It's like basements or graves, and that's where they torture the human rights activists. So that's where the torture chambers are? That's where the torture chambers are. The officers that they are torturing you, they're always wearing masks. You cannot see their faces. And they always call each other by numbers, not by name. And every day of torture is a higher level of torture. So if you do not speak in day number one, they take you to a higher level of day number two of torture. So what was on the first day? They shaved the hair of my head. They put my, they tied my hand, and they put, they hold me from my neck, and they put my head in very cold water, and after that, very hot water. And they will do this for three, four hours. They will give you rest between for 15, 20 minutes, and they will carry on until the, the end of the day. They put me back again on my cell. They told me, tell us the name of your friends. I told them, uh, to be honest with you, I didn't take shower for a long time, and I enjoy the cold and hot water, and I'm very handsome without hair. <laughs> now, many people will say, why would you say this to them? To them? And my answer will be, because when you are facing your enemy, never, ever, Show them your pain or your fear. Do not give them the satisfaction. Day number two, they hang me upside down. They burn me with cigarettes. They beat me with everything in their hands. And you have the scars from the cigarette burns? I have the scars, which I consider today as a medal of honor. They... I can't remember a lot in day number two. The only thing I can really remember is the taste and the smell of my blood. That means I was really beaten badly. They took me back again to my cell. I recall that I couldn't walk, and I remember the trace of blood that I left behind me. They put me back again to my cell. They told me, do you know what will be your torture next day? I told them I'm listening. They told me, we'll release three dogs to attack you. They will release dogs to attack you. These are big dogs, ambitious dogs, aggressive dogs. This would be normally Doberman or German Shepherd. And they close the door. Now, what do you do if you are in my place? You're on the ground. You're beaten. You're bleeding. There's no even window. It's absolute darkness. And there's no light in the room. There is nothing, not even a window. And... I prayed in this day, and I told him, Lord, if you can hear me, one thing you need to know, I don't regret my belief in you. I will do it again and again. However, you made me a flesh and blood. I don't know how strong I can remain in the face of this pain. And I'm afraid that under heavy torture, 
I can lose, you know, I can mention the name of my friends, and that will kill hundreds of people. And it will be betrayed to my group. I told him, my only request, take me home, kill me before tomorrow morning, from ash to ash, from dust to dust. They opened the door. Next day came. They opened the door. You can see the three dogs getting closer to your room. There is a red light in the corridor, so you can see their shadow. You can hear the way that they are breathing, the sound of their, of their, uh, the, the noise of their feet coming closer and closer to your room. I went and I sit down in the corner, and I attempt to protect as much as flesh as possible as I can. So you were crouching down? I was crouching down. The dog is getting closer and closer. I know that they are in my room because I can smell them. I know that they are breathing beside me. I was covering my face with my own hand. But I couldn't feel any pain. I wondered why, so I removed my hand away from my face, and that's what I saw. The three dogs sitting around me, none of them moved one single step. The officers and the soldiers didn't know what's happening. They said maybe the dogs, something wrong with the dogs. They took the three dogs. They bring another set of three dogs. There another set of three dogs sit in the same position with one little different. The middle dog took a step forward and he licked my face. The officers and the soldiers received the same message that I received, that maybe I'm alone, but I'm not lonely. Hmm. Day number four, officer number 27, biggest strong man, he opened the door very angry, very upset, and he said, listen, I'm not scared of you. I told him, of course you're not scared of me. You're the one torturing me. I'm the one supposed to be scared of you. <laughs> I told him, I'm here to make with you a deal. I told him, I'm listening. I told him, you give me the name of your friends, and I will give you whatever you like. You want money, I give you money. You want to be released, I will release you. You want beautiful girls, I will give you beautiful girls. You want brand new car, I will give you a brand new car. You want bigger house, I will give you a bigger house. But just give me the name of the rest of your group. I told him, I like it. I will take the deal. How many people, how many human beings can reject this kind of offer? I told him, but I have no strength. Even if I want to give you the information, I don't have the strength. Why don't give me food first, and after that we can talk? Mm-hmm. He told me, whatever you like, I will bring you. I told him, shish kebab. He went, he bring the best shish kebab. I sit down, I ate. He told me, now you tell me the name of your friends. I told him I cannot remember all the names of our friends, but I can give you the name of our leader. You can catch him. And he will give you all their names. He said, the leader? I thought that you are the leader. I told him, no, sir, I'm just a servant. Tell me, okay, give me the name of your leader. I told him the name of our leader, Jesus Christ. If you can catch him, catch him. He wasn't very happy. Officer number 27 punished me two punishment. The first punishment that he slapped my face. I hit the ground. I hit the walls. That's how strong his hand is. I flew, literally. That's how he slapped me so hard. You see, it was my first. I always make fun at it, and I always say it was my first time I fly without airplane. <laughs> it's brand new meaning for free air miles. And many of the people that are listening right now would wonder, how could you laugh about something like this and making fun about something like that? I would tell you how. This officer number 27, when he slammed my face 11 years ago, he felt that I would spend the rest of my life in shame, broken, 
defeated. He didn't know that 11 years later, I would be speaking with VIP and Fox News, making fun about it. What Officer 27 did not understand, that he can hurt my body, but he cannot touch my soul. That's very powerful. After that, they took me to another dark room, and this dark room was piece of wood in cross shape. They tied my neck, my arm, my waist, my legs. They took off my clothes for two days and a half. In the end of the two days and a half, they asked me again, would you say the name of your friends? I said, no. They brought an Egyptian knife. They made cut in the back of my left shoulders to the bones, and they put salt and lemon in my open wound. I collapsed from the power of the pain. I woke up. I found myself in a, a Guza hospital. as a police hospital. For three months, I couldn't move. The Egyptian government wrote report that I am mentally ill. Why they didn't kill me or put me in prison immediately? Because if they did this, they would make out of you a hero, a martyr. Also, purposely, so they, they do, kept you alive. Yeah, they destroy your character first, or your repetition first. Mm-hmm. So they call me mentally ill. It's an old Middle Eastern game. They put me in house arrest for nine months. And after that, they took me to court-martial, military court. And in this military court, I was charged for three charges that I tried to make revolution against the Egyptian government. Uh, my second charge, that I tried to change the official religion of Egypt from Islam to Christianity. My third charge, believe it or not, that I love and I worship Christ. Uh, why? And I would, yeah, Sorry, go ahead. No, and I, I was just about to say that I would tell you what I told the judge in this day. Please. I told him, Your Honor, if loving and worshipping Christ is wrong, I don't want to be right anymore. And if loving and worshipping him a crime, I'm guilty as charged. Go ahead. Why is the Egyptian administration so scared of Christianity? Because you mentioned earlier on that there's a fear of the truth. Um. First of all, what is that truth? But secondly, is it also not a fear from ignorance? It can be fear of ignorance. It can be fear of control. But what is the truth about Christianity that they so they go to the extent of persecuting a religious follower? Freedom. They are scared of freedom. It's the same like when they persecute Christians, for example, in China. China is not a Muslim country. It's a communist country. But there's always the fear of freedom. Does Christianity represent the West in their eyes just as much as Islam represents the Middle East from our eyes? It can be. It can be. It can be presenting the freedom in the West. It can be. There is something about Christianity, the freedom, the understanding of the concept of freedom and human rights, the understanding of of loving and, and, and united and it just all of these principles and I'm not saying that the Muslim doesn't have it per se but all of these principles they don't want to hear it presenting the West all of the above the lack of control well then you then you know okay fair enough you then escape from Egypt Tell our listeners how, tell our listeners this about this escape story because it sounds exciting. It's amazing. You know, being a Muslim, life was so peaceful for you. And after becoming a Christian, life has never been boring. 
So tell, tell our listeners how this whole process of escaping, because I know there's a jet ski involved in this and all that. Um, I, uh, my team, before they took me to the... I received the death penalty after the court martial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they took me back to my house arrest for four days until they transferred me to prison where I was supposed to be hanged. Right. Few days before, few hours, sorry, before they transferred me to prison, my team, my group that I raised in Egypt, they came, they attacked the home. Uh, they had a fight with the Egyptian soldiers that was protecting my home. I was able to escape to Alexandria, from Cairo to Alexandria. And Alexandria had behind a police station, it's called an Anfushi police station. And why behind a police station? Because this is the last place that the police would try to find, yeah. <laughs> like a movie, okay. Uh, during this time, the Egyptian police put my pictures and my name in every newspaper and every TV channel, and they put a price. Um, if you arrest this man, you receive this amount of money. My team, they told me, you have to leave the country. How you leave? You cannot take your passport and just leave because you're on the blacklist. If you know the Middle East very well, Egypt surrounded by Arab Muslim countries that I believe if you escape there, the same... Uh, destiny will be waiting for you. Uh, they torture you, they will kill you, and they will send you back to the Egyptians, like as Libya, Sudan, Saudi Arabia, and Jordan. The only one country that not Arab, not Muslim country was Israel. What did I know about Israel and what did I know about Jewish people at the time? I know only that the enemy of my enemy is my friends. <laughs> I escaped from Alexandria to Sinai, and Sinai hide with Bedouin family in the desert. For two months, two months and a half, I studied the Egyptian-Israeli border from Taba to Eilat. And there was two military boats protecting the border. One is Egyptian and one is Israeli. You try to cross, they will shoot you. And they're all standing facing each other. Still, how you cross? I went and I stole jet ski. Many people will listen, listening to us right now will say, but you are reverend, you are a man of God. How could you steal jet ski? I stole jet ski, sue me. I don't care. <laughs> And uh, I stole jet ski. I, I waited until 5.30 p.m. The sun is behind me, which is me will blind whoever is lo- see, looking at me. Right. And it's still how you escape. If you escape on the side, they will shoot you. But one point you can cross and they cannot shoot you is between the two boats. As crazy sound, but if they try to shoot you, it's called crossfire. They will shoot each other. Oh, okay. And the last thing that the Egyptians or the Israelis want to start a new war because just a guy crossing on a jet ski. By the time that I surprised them, of course, by the time they turned their boats around, I already reached a Princess Hotel. That's the name of the hotel in Eilat. It's called Princess Hotel. That's when I surrendered to the Israeli authority. And through the intervention of Amnesty International and United Nations, I become a free man in Jerusalem. Wow. And once again, with, with the intervention of Amnesty International and United Nations, I came here to Canada 11 years, uh, 10 years ago. And how do you earn a living now that you're in Canada? When I came here, I started One Free World International Human Rights Organization mm-hmm. to defend not only persecuted Christians, but other minorities as well. It uh, doesn't matter who they are, if you are facing persecution because you believe uh, standing against the rising of the anti-Semitism, but mainly, and the call that close to my heart is the persecution that happened to the Christians around the world. Now, you know, you've been invited to speak in various churches and synagogues. 
you've spoken to numerous media outlets. Um, I've noticed, though, you haven't spoken to many media outlets from the Middle East. Why is that? I never received an invitation. Is there, is, are, they, are they in fear of something you have to say or what you stand for? I, uh, you're I speaking, you're turning up on, on, on the Middle East media outlet. Would that be a reflection of the shame that they would face from what they've done to you? I believe that they are the only one who can answer this question. However, the fact that they, they, are, they are not open to the discussion, not open to the debate, even blocking me, blocking my YouTube and, uh, and my messages on the Internet, uh, it shows you their weak position. And it shows your strength. Basically a one-man show, and you've managed to shut down all media awareness for the local people in the Middle East. I will. Um, I will not take the credit for that. I will um, give the credit to my faith. Now, in in your escape, did your family have any part to play? Um, did they pay anybody or help no, you? No. As a matter of fact, my family went to the court martial, to the military court, and they requested from them to give the to give me the death penalty. As an individual and a human being, how does that feel? It feels like stabbing the heart. You have no idea. No, I don't, because, you know, I don't know how I would live if I had that on my head. See, it's not only the family. I lost my best friend, Tanner. The man that was working with me in the organization, they killed him in front of my eye. Uh, I lost my family. I lost my country, nationality. You know, the Egyptian government dropped my citizenship. I was 22 years old here in Canada. And, sorry, in Israel. And um, I had no nationality. I traveled from Israel to Canada. And in front of my citizenship was stateless. A man without land. A man without home. Can you imagine that? In my 20s. Six years ago, I stood in front of a Canadian judge and I swear the oath. And now I'm standing in front of you as a very proud Canadian. I remember the Canadian judge looked at me and told me, son, what the first thing you want to do as a Canadian? I told him, your honor, I want to drink beer, watch hockey and complain about the weather. (laughs) (laughs) He told me, son, you're a true Canadian. I told him, thank you, honor. But all of this pain, all of this sacrifice, all of this torture, all of this for Jesus Christ. And it's worth it. I will do it again. He died for me, and I will live, and I will die for him. I want to talk about the support of your cause from the various organizations from around the world. Um, Do you think the United Nations have done enough to start the stopping of this persecution? It's in my opinion that UN standing for United Nothing um, United Nations controlled by governments 
governments controlled by interest, interests controlled by politically correctness. Mm-hmm. UN failed the most needy, and they supported the most violent, the most people that can yell loud and scream and can threat. They were able to accommodate the request because they don't want the headache. Right. And the ones that have no voice, peaceful, United Nations did not care because they did not make enough noises. That's my opinion. Has this administration done enough, in your view? This administration done enough to ignore the minority rights and human rights. Um... I don't, I'm, not, I'm a Canadian. Right. I'm not a Republican, I'm not a Democrat, and I'm not from the Tea Party. I have respect to all of them. And I'm a poor Canadian guy living in Toronto. And I have no problem with President Obama color. Because right. I know that many people who say, oh, yeah, you don't like him because he's black or because he's, I don't care about his color. I'm an Egyptian, I'm African, for goodness sake, that's my roots. I'm a colored man myself, so I don't care about his color. President Obama, he is black as much as he's white. Right. Now, I mean, that's the Western side of what they have or have not done. You've also traveled to Pakistan and Afghanistan. You've met with government officials there, am I right? That's correct. What's been their response? Of the government in Pakistan and Afghanistan? Yeah. There is uh, denial, deception. Even in Afghanistan, where our, when we send our Canadian troops and our American troops and our children and our NATO troops, in Afghanistan today, there is a law that if a woman refused to sleep with her husband every four days, he has the right to starve her to death. This is true. In Afghanistan today, there is a law... Uh, uh, child abuse, um, school basha bazi, mm-hmm. boy play, that they bring children eight, nine years old, make them dance in a party, and whoever will pay more will rape the little boys every night, up to eight times a night. Mm-hmm. This is Afghanistan. Uh, 24 Christians was arrested in Afghanistan because they converted from Islam to Christianity and was tortured. One of them, his name is Obaid. Uh, sorry, Shuaid. He's here. I will rescue him from Afghanistan, and he's here in Canada. Right. This is something I never told it before to any media personnel. And this boy who was raped in the prison because he's converted from Islam to Christianity, this is the government that we supported. This is the government that we sent, Hamid Karazai government. This is the government that we send our troops die for them. This is the reality on the ground. And when we went with all of this concern to the American Congress, I testified in front of the American Congress many times about Pakistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, Egypt, Syria. The last one was about Syria two weeks ago, three weeks ago, right. in front of Christmas. So you know what they did? They what did they do? They we presented to them a full, complete recommendation. Mm-hmm. 
we don't point only on the problems. We even give the recommendation, the solution to get out of it. I don't just present you problems without solution. What's good that is? Everybody knows the problem. What about the solutions? We present the full recommendations and the plan way out. Ignored it. And now President Obama and this administration talking about supporting Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, supporting the rebels in Syria. And I have a message for them. I have a strong message for President Obama and this administration. President Obama, I cannot judge your domestic policies because I'm not American. I do not live in the United States. But as your foreign policy, listen to me carefully. You supported bin Laden during Mujahideen War, not you as a, as a president, but as a policy, American policy. You supported bin Laden during the Mujahideen War with the Soviet. They turned against you. And you supported Saddam Hussein in Iraq during the war with Iran turned against you. You supported the rebels in Libya, killed your American investors three months later. Now we are repeating the same mistake in Syria and in Egypt. And what's the definition of insanity? Is repeating the same action, expecting different outcome. And this is the reality, Mr. President. Okay, well, that's politicians for you. I want to get down to street level. Yes. Why are the Christians around the world not taking up this cause? Because, you know, if this persecution was happening to Muslims and Jews, there would be chaos on the streets. But here in the U.S., even in the U.K., I don't see even a peaceful protest outside, say, the Egyptian embassies. Um, is it because, as Christians, we've become too forgiving, ignorant, or, or is it that we just don't give a damn, and, and, and to the point that it actually makes us look weak? You know, they say charity begins at home. Which Christians are you talking about? Frontline, comfort zone, or conflict zone? You know, I don't really, um, I'm talking about Christians in the U.S., Christians in the U.K. The comfort zone, okay. So our world divided to two zones, a conflict zone mm -hmm. and a comfort zone. Mm -hmm. The more that you are Christian in the comfort zone, the more that you are under hate. You are facing the front line, you are facing persecution, you are united. Those are the, the Christians that, in the conflict zone? That's the conflict zone. Okay. The more we are in the comfort zone, the United States, Europe, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and so on and so forth, they are selfish, ununited, divided, lazy, don't want to hear about the message of persecution. They prefer the message of prosperity and healing and salvation than the message of persecution. They, are, they don't want to touch it. They're scared to read it. They're scared to hear about it. So what's happened, they don't know. They are ignorant. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So you're, saying, you're saying that Christians in the Western world, when you say they're selfish, is it because they're selfish because, is that another word for saying they're ignorant of the pain their followers go through, say, in Egypt? Yes. That's correct statement. So as a result, your organization, One Free World International, does it aim to provide awareness that your brothers and sisters of your religion are being persecuted? 
And this is one of our goals. Is not every goal that we're dealing, but education and advocating is one of our goals. But I need to tell you something. Go to our we- our website, not our website, sorry, go to our Facebook and Twitter. Mm-hmm. Can we speak honestly? Yes. Look how poor is our Facebook and our Twitter account. How poor it is. And now look at our network overseas. Hundreds of thousands. But here, in North America, our Facebook and Twitter is not that popular. Why? Because they don't want to hear this message. They are tired of it. No, they're not tired of it. They are just scared of it. And this is just that I'm a blind man. I know the weak points that I'm facing. And this is just the reality. Well... Are we talking about moving Christians from the conflict to the comfort zone or vice versa? I'm talking about conscious. The conscience? Yes. Mm-hmm. If you think that you are far away from persecution, think again. It's just a matter of time to reach you. If you did not stand for others today, they will come against you tomorrow. Our world today is unfair place, right. is unjust place, not because the people is doing evil, because the people who remain silent about it. Talking about Martin Luther King, he's the one who said, history will not remember the words of our enemy, but will remember the silence of our friends. In the absence, listen to this carefully, in the absence of darkness, Sorry, in the absence of light, yes. darkness prevails. That's the truth. How can our listeners help you? Pray for us. Go to our website, www.onefreeworldinternational.org. Uh, Onefreeworldinternational.org, right? Yes. Okay. Make a donation. Contact your congressman. Contact your senator. Contact your media personnel, tell them the truth. Do something. Don't remain silent. And all the details are on your website? Yes. Well, Reverend Majid, all I can say at the moment is thank you for coming on the show, sharing your life with us, sharing some very uh, interesting details that you didn't share anywhere else. You know, in my opinion, you're truly a living legend, and I hope and pray that your fight against persecution makes all the difference. Thank you for having me. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Feel free to send in your comments to our Facebook page at facebook.com slash the VIP Report or tweet me at VIP on Twitter. And keep your ears open for the next airing of the VIP Jazzwall Report coming soon.